third player was Jim Thorpe, a great guy, as you probably know. And and uh, so he got over the ball, and, and I knew that somebody had to play a provisional ball. But so all of a sudden, Jim was ready to hit. He, he was quick to the tee, and he was ready to hit. And all of a sudden, I blurted, Jim, is this a provisional ball? And Jim turned around, he looked at me, he says, man, I ain't even hit it yet, and you guys are trying to penalize me. In 1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leaf, now called the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honor, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leaf Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, it is wonderful once again to be back with you for the Silver Club podcast, our 17th episode. Who'd have thought we made it this far? <laughs> Almost a complete round of golf. <laughs> Almost a full 18. Well, we've got a fantastic guest in Ron Reed, who was the starter for over 20 years at the United States Open. He's got some amazing stories from between 1986 and 2010. He started at Shinnecock Hills in 1986 when Ray Floyd won. He ended in 2010 at Pebble Beach when Graham McDowell captured the U.S. Open title. So he's got a lot of stories from starting off all of these players, over 11,000 players in total that he actually started in the U.S. Open from Jack Nicklaus to Tiger Woods, you name it. He was uh, he was right there in the middle of the action and uh, starting him. So we'll listen to Ron Reed in a moment. But uh, let's uh, I don't think we've talked a lot about Matt Wolf and Colin Morikawa and the youth movement in golf. I mean, I know you as the Yale golf coach, you're all in touch with what's going on in the junior ranks and the amateur ranks. Just uh, what's what's your take on these guys and their uh, how far they're bombing it and how well they're they're making the transition so quickly from the amateur to the pro ranks. Well, I, I got to see, we got to see Matt Wolf at uh, regionals a year ago and, and we're always so impressed with the great programs and the, and the best players um, justifiably. So, and, but the thing that is now apparent to me and pretty shocking is when we would see them in shorts and in, in a college environment, I didn't realize just how little of a gap there was between them and PGA Tour winner, which is almost uh, paper thin slash non-existent. And every time I think like the Yale golf team and the Ivy League schools keep making progress and we do, what I hadn't really accounted for until uh, going to regionals this year and then seeing what a lot of these college kids are doing is actually they too have been pitching forward in that the gap between us and the best college players in spite of our progress might still be the same as it was and uh it it's 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 sort of amazing to me that i texted my team late in the afternoon on that final round of the um of the minnesota pga tour event and i i, I texted them between uh, victor hovland and matt wolf they've they were combined like 30 
one under par at the moment. They piled on a few more under par scores in the in the back nine. I'm like, imagine that with 40% of the Oklahoma State lineup like a month or so earlier. Isn't that incredible? Nobody, I mean, yeah, it's it's amazing. Anybody in the world of, of college golf even had a chance to win one. I mean, and, and the match play, the unpredictability, unpredictability of match play really, you know, it led to Stanford Cardinal winning. Obviously, they were they, they won the last five college events going into, you know, the whole season. But so they were playing well, certainly. But uh Oklahoma State certainly had a dominating dominating team there and uh you know Matt Wolf winning the individual title there but uh yeah they, they made this transition in the Colin Morikawa he finished third last week at the John Deere too so uh they're, they're just making this transition it's like a it's like a piece of cake it blows my mind when I made the transition from amateur to pro it just was I don't know I didn't think it was that easy I I don't know. Maybe I, I didn't hit 350 yards either, and so uh, you know that that certainly makes it a little bit easier to transition. But they're they're just unfazed by the whole circus and arena that is the PGA Tour. It just it blows my mind. I'll tell you what. I also think that they're not making a transition um, up in terms of difficulty of PGA Tour events versus what they're seeing on a regular basis in regionals and in NCAA's and throughout the year. Like seeing the blessings on TV, that was harder than a tour event, no question. You know, maybe a few majors and the hardest tour event of the year might be in that conversation with blessings. And the, the conference championships when they play at Southern Hills and late April from 7,400 yards. Like it's possible that the majority of uh, Matt Wolf and Colin Morikar and Victor Hovland's college rounds were on tournament courses longer than your average PGA tour course, which is actually kind of shocking to say, but it's true. I mean, they, they're not, they're not coming to the PGA tour and, and, and suddenly experiencing like an uptick in difficulty on the golf courses. And then the amount that of sort of attention and, and, uh, praise they get and and spectators at some of those larger college events like there i think and the number of sort of times that they had those amateur opportunities during their amateur days to play in a tour event here and there they come fully ready there is no sort of like learning curve for these guys they're ready to play well on a 70 300 yard course that doesn't have a lot of sort of uh, easy birdies out there and so it's and, fun to watch and they're used it. to the tv cameras and now you've got uh you know there's lots of lots of collegiate events now that are televised uh whether it's live streaming or it's on the golf channel broadcast uh they're they're ready they're ready to go with that circus so no no question uh an event actually that's going to be live stream talking about the amateur game uh coming up july 29th the western amateur is going to be played this year at point of woods in Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, where I have some fond memories 20 years ago of uh, capturing that Western Amateur title. Uh, incidentally, in September, on the uh, 13th to the 15th, we're going to have our third Silver Club Golfing Society major there as well at Point of Woods. Uh, just a, a wonderful venue, about two hours drive right around the lake from Chicago uh, is Point of Woods. And uh, yeah, the Western Am's coming up and you know maybe arguably the, the most difficult event to win in all of golf will, will you might you be there scouting some guys out or uh, taking a peek at some of the players maybe i love that event um 
I have never been to it, but I'm fascinated by this concept of 72 holes of stroke play and then four rounds of match play. Tell me, you know, I, now's as good a time to preview it. Um, but I, you told me once, and I love the story, that you really were, after being on the Walker Cup in 97 and having your sort of famous, you know, battle with Tiger in 96, you were – uh, you were kind of on the outside looking in for that 99 Walker Cup at Nairn, and and uh, you ran the table. Tell tell, tell us uh, tell me about that about going to going to Ben Harbor 20 years ago this summer. Yeah, so the Western Amateur, so many great memories in Ben Harbor, Michigan. I mean, to to I really wasn't in a position that year to to be in the mix for the Walker Cup uh, selection committee and get back on their radar. And I'd had an okay year, but nothing. Uh, nothing off the charts. I played pretty well in some college events, but needed a really good summer amateur uh, performance to to try to solidify the 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 uh, and and really the Western Amateur, other than the USAM, was really about my last chance to to put my mark out there. So uh, it was it was pretty special week. The second round, I went out and shot sixty two, which was the course record at the time, and. Uh, I just, I hold every putt and, you know, the hole looked as big as a, a peach basket and uh, end up winning the stroke play portion of it. Beat guys like Aaron Baddeley and Adam Scott, uh, Ben Curtis. I was paired with Ben Curtis, the eventual uh, British Open champion. Uh, I was paired with him for the final 36 holes. We had about 120 degrees heat index, by the way. They let the competitors wear shorts for the very first time. So that was a, a unique thing, but uh, it, it got really, really hot in early August that year. Darn near passed out on the golf course. I was getting dizzy. and But anyway, uh, went on to the match play, uh, got through match play, got all the way to the finals, played against Johnny Miller's son, Andy, uh, ended up winning two and one in that final there, and uh, really punched my ticket to, on the Walker Cup team that year with that performance. Uh, and another thing that made it really special I was newly married that summer. Uh, one month earlier in July, we, uh, my wife Christy and I were married in early July, and this was really you know, the, one of the first couple events that she had caddied for me as, uh, as a married couple. So she was on the bag that whole week, and, and uh, it was just a special, special time and uh, very, very fond memories up there. Very cool, and and you told me that there's sort of um, it's one of the only tournaments where there's there's almost like a there's a distinction for the medal, the medalist, right? After there's almost a there's almost its own sort of trophy ceremony. There, is there not? Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah, after seventy two holes, uh, yeah, the, they give the medalist uh, a nice award, and and all the top sixteen, they they call it the Sweet Sixteen. They have a a nice dinner that night scheduled for the sweet 16. They give you a little memento. I think they gave us a really nice watch or something. And uh, just, just, just so cool. What the, what the Western golf association has done uh, not only for that event. I mean, you, you think about what the Western golf association has done for uh, the, the advent of caddying and the, the Evan scholars foundation. And uh, we were actually to kind of make a tie into what's going on this week at the U S junior at the Inverness Club in Toledo, Ohio, uh, we had our last Silver Club event, our, our one-day event at, at Inverness uh, about three weeks ago, and we had Evan Scholars uh, caddies caddy for us, and uh, a lot of females out there caddying. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, you know, the Evan Scholars Foundation. I mean, they're sending kids to college through caddying, and 
And, uh, you know, maybe I have to get off on a tangent here, but the, you know, the Western Golf Association, has just, they've done so much for the game of golf. And, you know, the Western Amateur is, uh, you know, one of those culminations of, of what they've done overall. Um, I, we, 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 can't, we can't go anywhere today without talking, uh, shifting gears a little bit, talking about the Open Championship at Royal Portrush in Northern Ireland. Unfortunately, I've never been there, but I know you've made the pilgrimage over to Northern Ireland. What are the players going to see this week? What, what's the challenge that faces them? Um, by the way, 20 years, my favorite day of the summer is to wake up on round one of the Open Championship around 5 a.m. And, and just turn on the coverage and have sort of the best players in the world halfway through the front nine and playing that some of the best two hours, most peaceful two hours of the summer. And hmm. if, if, if you can't be there, I've only been to a few, but I, unlike like you, 20, uh, 20 summers ago, goodness gracious. I spent the whole weekend and whole uh, week at Carnoustie for the epic Vandeveld collapse. And, uh, and then I was, I, I happened to be at the open in 2000 at St. Andrews and then, uh, I was at uh, Carnoustie in 07, but only three times. But the rest of the time, I'm a I'm a early morning TV warrior. Uh, I think we're in for what you can expect in Ireland, in the north of Ireland, up on the top of the coast. The, uh, there's very specific rainy and dry areas in Great Britain and Ireland. People think it's all rainy. It's not. Uh, the, the east sides of of England and Scotland and Ireland are drier than the sort of west and the north. And um, not that it can't be sunny in those places, but I think you're going to get a wet, nasty, open championship, lush, rough. It's not going to be yellow like some years. I think it's going to be a challenge with some heavy crosswind, beautiful Harry Colt greens. Scenic is anywhere, real sort of the world beater of a golf course. Every open course in the Rota is is spectacular, but some are better than others. And um, it's it, it's hard for people who play Portrush not to count it among their sort of ten favorite courses in the world. Or uh, there are two new holes. I'm not the biggest fan of of why they had to do it and all the compelling reasons and the, and and the sort of and uh, what that meant to Dunluce, which was also a Harry Cole course, which was if it stood on its own would be highly regarded. Um, but you know, that's how, I guess that's progress. <laughs> uh, and so I, I look forward to seeing how they, how they play out. And I would love to see, I would love to see the weather and the conditions sort of combined have even par be a winning score. Uh, not as a, not as an intended winning score, as a sort of, as a result of extremely difficult four days of golf. How much local knowledge do you think is going to be playing, will play a factor there? Because, you know, we saw this week where uh, Brooks Kepka's caddy, Ricky Elliott, uh, is a native of theirs, gone around that golf course many, 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 many hundreds of times, in fact. And it was so funny to me and, and I, I love Tiger Woods, don't get me wrong, but, but some would think I wouldn't. But I thought it was funny how Kepka wasn't returning uh, any text from Tiger to ask it because Tiger wanted to play with Kepka to try to get some inside information from Ricky Elliott. I thought that was hilarious. That's awesome. It's come to this. Kepka's ghosting Tiger. Um, 
You know, I would say uh, there's only so much. Uh, there's probably a, 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 an aspect that it's it's uh, local knowledge can be helpful. However, it's not going to override someone coming in and, and playing great, or someone not going to help someone who's playing poor. Yeah, yeah, I hear the green. Uh, the greens are pretty. The greens are pretty flat over there overall. You could say that uh, Royal St. George's sandwich would require a lot of local knowledge. And your boy, you just referenced Ben Curtis, just went there and never been on a Lynx courts in his life on like Monday of that week, and wound up winning an open. Um, it's it comes down to how you can flight it, how you can uh, how you can sort of are you a two way shaper. That's really what I think is the secret to that golf course. You're going to have to cut the ball. You're going to have to draw the ball. You can't be one-dimensional. How, how, and green is actually not a premium there. The greens don't get past 10, and, and they're fairly flat. And uh, the good putters do well because they can just hole everything. Um, they're not hard to read. There's not grain involved. I think uh, there's as, as much as any courts in the – in um, you know, of of the four majors, you can just kind of get going on a link and go and and having never seen it and play really well. I think the one benefit they will have is just knowing how, what what the lines are on a links course. The great links courses are playable in a two club win in every single sort of uh, degree of the three hundred and sixty degree dial, and I think that's that's the thing that you. Rory's going to know or Darren Clark's going to know from hundreds of rounds when it's downwind on this hole a little bit more off the shoulder this bunker you fly and the next one is suddenly in play and or a bunker that that's what I love about Lynx courses the bunker you carry one day without even thinking you turn around the next day and you just sort of one hop right into it I love that it could be in the same it could be in the afternoon after the wind changes <laughs> Yeah, that's that's definitely the magic of those that's very well said well I can't wait to wake up really early this whole week and watch the British Open, the Open Championship, just like you, and uh, yeah, certainly one of the uh, one of the greatest times watching golf for sure. And uh, it's the final major of the year as well. So now on the uh, this new schedule, so it puts a it puts a new wrinkle in the uh, in the whole script of the uh, of the Open Championship. You got your your golf season probably starting in another month or so, huh? Yeah, not not for a while. I know we mentioned it. I'm I'm excited. I had two players on the same day qualify for the U.S. Amateur in the Met section. At different venues, by the way, both for uh, Charles Banks design, mm -hmm. uh, Whipper Will and Hackensack. So it was cool to see Yaley's qualifying on a on golf courses designed by a Yale undergraduate. And um, and like you, I, I again I don't want to touch the money or sort of get in the way, but. Uh, Nothing would make me happier than seeing James Nick make a run at the Western Amateur, and then and then continuing that it in Pinehurst and and it's I think your story is is an inspirational tale that no matter where you are in the middle of July with even even sort of six eight weeks two months from the wall out, any kid who goes who goes runner up runner up first third whatever. Those two events, that's those, those two events have the type of um, prestige and leverage to automatically uh, pull someone in. Yeah, they could they could definitely make the difference. Well, uh, yeah, look forward to watching how that all unfolds. And 
Uh, can't wait. We'll get to our guest this week, Ron Reed, here in a moment. All right, Colin. But before we get to our next guest in Ron Reed, the U.S. Open starter for over 20 years, I wanted to say we couldn't host this podcast without the help of the Silver Club Golfing Society. Our golfing society is growing exponentially each and every day. I'm talking to some great people all across the country who want to be a part of something special, a camaraderie-based competition golfing society. We are playing great events all over the place. Our next event, August 5th, will be at Conway Farms in Chicago. So get on our website, silverclubgolfingsociety.com. Check that out. You can sign up for the one-day event at Conway Farms. Other venues we're going to play this year include Pasa Tiempo in Quaker Ridge and even the Old Town Club, a great Perry Maxwell design in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So you're not going to want to miss all that. Thanks to our partners of the Silver Club Golfing Society, the Dunhill brand, Club Champion, Blast Motion, Torch Eyewear, Links and Kings, and Turtleson. And remember, if you play in a Silver Club Golfing Society event in 2019, your name will go into a raffle for 2020 to the Dunhill Links Championship and have a great opportunity for a trip of a lifetime over there, thanks to our friends at Dunhill. So check that out. If you want to play some of the country's best courses and hit shots that matter, then the Silver Club Golfing Society is where you need to be. Again, silverclubgolfingsociety.com on the web and on Instagram and Twitter at Silver Club Golf. Okay, now let's get to this week's guest, the starter on the first tee of the U.S. Open for over 20 years, Mr. Ron Reed. Okay, we are very, very privileged at the Silver Club Podcast today to be joined by my good friend and the, the man who was on the tee as the starter from 1986 to 2010 for the U.S. Open, Mr. Ron Reed. Welcome to the Silver Club Podcast. Boy, I couldn't be happier to be with uh, anybody in golf. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> well, for those who don't know Ron Reed and his story, we're going to get to it all today. But um, it, it's just it's a remarkable story, really not not coming from any any golfing background uh, from your parents and 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 your upbringing in Chicago. But uh, you, you really loved baseball growing up, and really golf wasn't wasn't introduced completely right away. But uh, talk up a little about you know just a little about your upbringing in Chicago and how how your your path kind of led towards the game of golf. Wow! I well, as I start the book out, that that wasn't my favorite part of the book, telling people that I was once kidnapped by my father, whom uh, in life I never knew, but. Uh, don't feel sorry for Ron Reed. He was a lucky guy. And I ended up with uh, like eight brothers and sisters while they were all my uncles. And um, later on, I went on and I, I, you know, being in Chicago, it's pretty cold in the winter, as you know. And I learned to play baseball at age eight in a gymnasium. And and that led to a, a love for baseball. So I played Little League Baseball. And one day I hoped to be a Chicago White Sox. And I wanted to be a left-handed Second baseman Nellie Fox. He was a, he was number two on his uniform and number one in my heart. I love Nellie Fox, but um, I I actually went next door to my neighbor Albie Hollins. I said, Albie, uh, I've been watching this thing called golf. Can I 
can I go hit balls in your yard? I'll tell you what, here's the deal, Albie. I will mow your yard so I can hit those golf balls and try to learn how to hit down on a ball to make it go up. I never, you know, that was a hard thing to understand. But so I, I got into golf and then later on um, being, I lived out in the sticks. So I was alone a lot and I learned to play, I play basketball too. So I was very sports oriented, but in the end, um, uh, 20 years later, golf won out and I, I chose it as my career. Well, it was a, it was a, a pretty doggone good choice because it led you to a lot of things, you know, uh, aside from being the starter at the, at the United States open and you went to Drake university and, and I think you probably had a pretty good, pretty good time there being a, a Drake bulldog and, Zach Johnson as well, uh, a pretty famous Drake Bulldog who won uh, the uh, Open Championship over at St. Andrews. And I think you were there that day, weren't you? I was there. I, I saw him from above. I was on, this, on the, uh, <clears throat> the veranda of the secretary of the club. I watched him hit his first shot on his way to history. And, and then uh, I was there when he actually, after he holed a long putt on uh, the 72nd hole, and I was there as he, he rushed off to sign his scorecard. So that was a, a special time uh, for me and obviously for Zach. Well, well, over time, I mean, you, you uh, experienced a lot. And this, you, your book, Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach, is, uh, is really a, a tremendous read. And it's really, we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about that. But we're going to talk your ability to, to share all these moments uh, really from behind the curtain in a way uh, that, that that have been piling up in your head over the years. And uh, I, I can't wait to get to all of them. But, you know, really, the Monterey Peninsula is really a, a special place in your life. In, uh, in 2010, when you finished up being the starter at the U.S. Open, you finished at a Pebble Beach. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But going back really to, to the start of why you ended up on the Monterey Peninsula Talk a little bit about how you ended up out there in that most beautiful part of the world. Well, that's one of the uh, many lucky things that happened. I, I was actually going to be an Air Force officer during the Vietnam War. I was in ROTC, and, and then I went home. I took a physical, and my doctor said, you have a heart murmur. You'll never serve in the, in the military. So I went back to Drake. I dropped out of ROTC. Well, guess what happened when I graduated? I got my draft notice. And I went down to in Berwyn, Illinois, and I passed the physical. So there I was in the <laughs> Army now. And, so that first doctor and, uh, wasn't right. <laughs> no, the, <laughs> the doctor, uh, he didn't get that one right. But it turned out to be one of the luck, maybe the luckiest thing that happened to me. Because uh, after basic training, I got these orders for the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. And all my friends said, well, that's a mistake. They don't send a draftee there. Well, guess what? They did. And I stayed. And I, the first night I was there, on September the 8th, 1967, 52 years ago, I met my wife-to-be. I met her that night. And uh, here your, we are. On your first We're day, ready. on your first day there, first you, day met, you met your future wife, Missy. And, yeah, and, yeah you just celebrated your 50th wedding anniversary recently. Two weeks ago, yeah. Wow. And, uh, Congratulations on that. That's a heck of an accomplishment in itself. She was she was a teacher, an elementary teacher from Glendale, California, and guess what she told me? 
we're not leaving. So <laughs> uh, I wasn't going back to Chicago. I was staying in Monterey. So um, I, I, uh, I contacted the Northern California Golf Association, a very large, probably the biggest at the time in the country. And uh, eventually they gave me a job and it turned out to be a career. I spent over 40 years uh, serving the game, if you will. But how, how did you get in 1986 then, fast forwarding to, to then, and the U.S. Open was played at Shinnecock when Ray Floyd won out there. How did you get the call to be on the tee? The I man. never got a call. <laughs> <laughs> I, for uh, roughly five years, I was the so-called player liaison to the players. And I would uh, meet them at player registration, which was which something I handled. And I would lead them through the process of registering. And then I'd help them throughout the week in various needs, whether it was finding a babysitter or, or uh, finding them a new room. Uh, I, was, I tried to be helpful to them. But I got to know a lot of the players. Well, in, in 1986, David Fay, uh, who was the leader, one of the leaders of the USGA and the starter, uh, was having some health issues, and Frank Hannigan came to me Thursday morning of the championship, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, uh, you're the starter. He gave me no instructions, and he said, uh, welcome to showbiz, and <laughs> I had no idea what that meant, but I went to the first tee with a bullhorn, and a, and uh, I, hadn't, I didn't even have a clipboard, and it was raining uh, probably the worst day in U.S. Open history. And there I was out there without a rain suit, without a clipboard, and I, I got drenched. I was, it was a sorry sight. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I bet you from the, that day on, you had your Gore-Tex handy in your, in, your, uh, in your case there, right near the, the tee. But uh, just, just uh, imagine, I, I, uh, we're, and we'll get to all these great stories, uh, but, but in your book, you talk about the dreamers of the U.S. Open. And in 1992, there was a man named Andy Dillard, who was one of those dreamers. Uh, talk a little about the story of Andy Dillard. And, and I mean, he, he made it through and up and onto the leaderboard in the U.S. Open, being an absolute unknown. Well, Steve, you know how hard it is to qualify for the U.S. Open. I mean, they get roughly uh, 9,000 entries, and out of that... Uh, it's less than 1% that make it through stages one and two of qualifying. And you know how hard it is. And, and so my heart has always been with the dreamers, uh, guys like Andy Dillard. And <laughs> Andy, um, the, the year before, in trying to qualify at Hazeltine, he, he missed qualifying by one stroke to go to the U.S. Open. And you know why? because he didn't play a practice round and on one hole he played to the wrong green and it ended up costing the spot to go to the U.S. Open. So the next year he went to Memphis. He had no money. He parked his car, his truck. He was from Oklahoma and he went to Memphis and uh, as luck would have it, he qualified for the U.S. Open. And as luck would have it again, they had a charter flight for the players at at the Memphis Open to Pebble Beach. And he needed a charter flight because he had no money. And I didn't know it, but he gave me a check for 
over $1,200, and I initialed it and approved it, and he had no money. <laughs> and I introduced him the first day and uh, from Edmond, Oklahoma, Andy Dillard. And he went out and he birdied the first hole. He almost eagled the second hole. He birdied the third hole at Pebble Beach. He birdied the fourth hole. He birdied the fifth hole. He missed an eagle putt on six, so he birdied that. And he birdied, and, and so he started with six birdies. Well, suddenly, Andy Dillard went from nobody to somebody, and there was a big crowd out there. And, and on the seventh hole, he missed maybe the easiest putt he had, about a 12-footer. And then on eight, he had a three-footer for another birdie, and he missed that one. So here, wow. here was a guy from Edmond, Oklahoma, who had no money in his pocket, who suddenly started the U.S. Open six under par. And he was in the leading group up through uh, the third round, playing with Dr. Gil Morgan. And guess what? He made over $18,000 in prize money. And he made another 27000 plus because his logo was shown on television so many times. And he suddenly he found he had enough money to fly back to Memphis and claim his truck and drive home to Edmond, Oklahoma. Wow. And guess what he does today? Talked to him uh, not long ago. He, he's driving an oil truck. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's, so that's, that's where my heart is. <laughs> yeah. The, all, the, all the dreamers out there, you've got some great other dreamer stories in your book that all of our silver club podcast listeners have to listen to, uh, you know, just we'll kind of chronologically move through. I, I, I've looked at some of these stories and it, it, they're just so cool. The, the really for me though, and, and, and this wasn't completely in there, but I appreciate you getting, having a, a little quote of mine in your book, but, uh, Really, our our friendship and relationship really started, and we didn't we didn't really chat at the time. But back in 1996 at Oakland Hills, when I played in the U.S. Open there as an 18 year old, uh, fortunately I made the cut. So I heard you announce my name for four four straight days, and and that was uh, probably the most special time of my life. And you know when when you said, "Ladies and gentlemen, this is the 7:30 starting time from Coral Springs, Florida." Steve Scott and it's amazing when you get that nervous for me on the player side I don't know about you how much your heart starts beating out of your chest but on my side of things trying to step up there and actually hit a golf shot it was it was just something uh it was something so special and something I'll never ever forget of feeling that so uh it was pretty cool that you were you were the one that that uh, got my U.S. Open dream started so uh, <laughs> that's pretty neat pretty neat uh, well I, I wish you could see me uh smiling and shaking my head those are special moments and um, once again it's the dreamers and get if i can just for a second one of the one of the great stories in the book is about a guy named henry jeremiah brown who entered the u.s open believe it or not from prison and i before every u.s open i'd think about guys like you and Henry J. Brown, and 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 what a I mean, what an incredible story! Finally, three years later, he almost got into the U.S. Open. I won't tell the rest of the story, but but that's where my heart was uh, always with the Dreamers. And I, before every U.S. Open, I thought of Henry J. Brown, who all he ever wanted was a chance. 
to go play in the U.S. Open. Yeah, he, he, he meant a lot to me. Yeah, that, you'd certainly have to read that story, but he was a cross-handed player uh, who was a caddy at Augusta National, and I think you said he caddied for Roberto Di Vincenzo. Uh, as, as well, so uh, yeah, you, you got to read, got to read that story. Uh, that's just that's a that's an amazing story. But you know, as we move through, I mean, you've yep. seen some amazing, uh, just some of the, the the original talents really come out. You saw you started Tiger Woods in his very first U.S. Open at Shinnecock in '95, um, and in 1999. Uh, this maybe wasn't really the start uh, of, of the career. Un unfortunately, it was actually on the other end of things. It was, it was on the end of a career uh, that was sadly cut short. But it, uh, talk about the, the starting, uh, the final group, the final pairing, if you will, uh, of Phil Mickelson and Payne Stewart in 1999 at Pinehurst. And it had to do with a pair of scissors and the Pinehurst <laughs> Uh, village Chapel chimes. Well, it, it, normally, as you know, the players don't get to the first tee too early, and uh, in this case, Payne did, and it was drizzly, and he came to me and he said, uh, "You got a pair of scissors?" And I looked, I kind of went around him, and and I realized, uh, I said, "Well, you don't need a haircut." He says, "No, I want to cut these sleeves off," and he was wearing a a fancy rain jacket, and. Uh, I I didn't believe him really, but I told him, I said, okay, I called the tennis shop there at Pinehurst and they found a pair of scissors and the caddy raced off, came right back and, and Phil was standing there, wondering what's going on as, um, as they cut the sleeves off this um, fancy rain jacket he was wearing. Well, and then I got the cue from um, uh, probably Roger Maltby, I think. And the cue was to go, begin the play. Well, guess what? The church, about a block away, was playing a song, and it was playing Amazing Grace. And, and I decided at that moment, I'm, I'm just going to pause. I'm, I'm not going to take the orders from NBC. And we paused for a little bit and let the, the hymn finish, and then I began the introductions. So, and... Um, <laughs> And of course, on October 25th of that year, we lost Payne Stewart. And I looked back on that moment and thought, somebody up there knew something. So um, that was a special moment. By the way, those sleeves, they hang today in that same tennis shop. That uh, I believe it's a tennis shop there at Pinehurst. So uh, there's a, a nice memory from the U.S. Open. That's an amazing story, right? Yeah, I mean, if uh, yeah, if that all doesn't happen, you don't get that the time exactly to start like that. And the following year, back out on the Monterey Peninsula in 2000, you saw a bit of the passing of the torch. It was Jack Nicklaus's final U.S. Open, and it was Tiger's 15-shot triumph out there. Talk a little bit about being in that arena and that atmosphere and I know there were some weather delays, so your your job actually was was extended. Uh, it seemed like each and every day as well. It was. We had uh, fog came in, and and it stopped play for a couple of days. Actually, we were delayed. But um, the the great well, obviously Tiger ran away with it. But uh, in the first round, um, Roger Maltby came to me and he said. Uh, 
wouldn't it be great if we, if we, uh, if Jack Nicholas, in some way, who was filling in for Payne uh, in in that starting time, starting slot, it wouldn't it be great if we uh, memorialized Payne? I said, Roger, they did that on Wednesday with a 21 ball salute where they all hit balls out in the bay. I said, this is way above my pay grade. Let's let's just do the introduction and have him play golf. Well. Roger obviously went back to talk to Jack because when Jack came to the tee, he he said, uh, "Wouldn't it be great if we um, if we did something for pain?" And I I went through this again. I said, "Jack, we've done that already." And then I thought for a minute. I said, "Look, when you're introduced, guess what? You're in charge. There's nothing I can do." And um, I said, "But just don't tell anybody that we made a deal, okay? Okay." <laughs> so. I introduced him, and uh, all of a sudden, he, he backed off, and he got very emotional, and I would tell you that he shed a tear, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to take a moment and remember our national champion, and uh, his caddy, his son, Jackie, gave him a towel, and uh, it took a moment, and there, there wasn't a dry eye in the area, I'll tell you that, and off he went. And um, there's more to the story, but but that's what happened when Jack played. And of course, um, Tiger, what can you say? I mean, 15 shots, my gosh. Um, all you can say is on one round, he, he came to the 18th hole and he didn't know it. And he only had one golf ball left <laughs> after he hit the first one into the ocean. And he didn't know it. That's All that's... he had was one ball to play the 18th hole um, of, the, of that particular round. Unbelievable, but but you, you wouldn't have really known that because apparently he never really spoke many words to you at all on the first tee, did he? Did Tiger? No, I, I would say Tiger was the most focused player I've ever seen. Um, he, no, we didn't talk, we didn't talk very much. So well, I didn't um, talk much to him in 1996 U.S. Amateur <laughs> final either. So don't don't feel so bad. Ouch! <laughs> How well I remember that and. Uh, yeah, let me just put it this way. You went into my personal Hall of Fame on that on that occasion. Too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> so, but there 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 was, had to be a lot of funny moments. I mean, obviously there was the, you know, the solemn moments and the ones you reflect back on and, you know, with Nicholas shedding tears, you know, the whole thing. But but there had to be a lot of funny moments, too, on the first tee and things that, that kind of you know, just, just kind of made you sit back and giggle. And, you know, maybe there was a, maybe you mispronounced a name or somebody's hometown. Talk, talk about maybe a, a couple of funny stories along those lines. Oh, wow. Where do I begin? I once got, <laughs> I had JJ Henry um, at Shinnecock Hills final round to be introduced. And long story short, we just before that, we were talking about a friend of mine, JJ uh, Wagner, who ran the Bel Air Country Club and and the conversation was about J.J. Wagner. Well, I, when I went to introduce J.J. Henry, guess what came out? J.J. Wagner. And here, here my friend was asleep 3,000 miles away, and he was being introduced in the U.S. Open. So uh, fortunately, J.J. Henry's a good guy, and he laughed, and I laughed. And, um, a lot of – I did a lot of silly things in 23 years. Um, um, perhaps the – one of the funniest was, it wasn't funny at the time, but I introduced um, the, the introduction in 1992. Um, 
I got to int the introduction of the special observer in the final group of the U.S. Open. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome the special observer, Joe Carr, captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, Scotland. And here's what came out from Dublin, England. <laughs> and there was some laughter. And I realized my mistake, and I corrected myself and said Ireland. Well, the next to speak was Peter Alice, the announcer from uh, BBC and, and uh, then ABC television. And you know what he said? What did, what did wars, Peter say? Wars have started over less. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that taught me to laugh at myself. Um, I realized that uh, this was not... Uh, that's serious. This, even though it was worldwide and everybody laughed at me, I learned to laugh at myself. Well, well, for me, when I, when I was reading your book, maybe the funniest story for me was the one in 1993 on the first tee at Baltusrol <laughs> and, uh, and with Jim Thorpe. You have, to, you have to tell our Silver Club podcast listeners about this one. Well, it's, that one's not easy to tell, but... Um, J. Don Blake was the first player in the group, and he uh, he, he he hit the ball near the out of bounds. On the well, left. You, you have to you have to tell our listeners what set the scene real quick about the first tee. Though there was uh, maybe some some uh, just some people running around, and there just was maybe uh, a little bit more chaos and maybe a little bit more unorganization than you would have personally liked, and which I'm sure you quickly rectified, yeah. but. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so, so then, so then you had to start a group with maybe some, uh, your, your thoughts were not quite in order. Well, the, the evening before Bill Rafferty, the great basketball announcer and PJ Carlissimo, the, the basketball and uh, coach and TV analyst, they were on the tee and they were doing the practice round introductions and it was chaos. They, they had a riot going down there and Little that I know, they're not only uh, great coaches and TV personalities, but they're they're humorous. I mean, these guys were comical, and I went down there to just kind of have a look at this whole thing and get you know in my mind how I was going to organize it. And I realized I had a big problem. Well, when I got to the the tee the next morning, Thursday, it was still riotous, and I I couldn't organize people properly and. Frankly, I couldn't even see the players. I was back there, and people were in front of me, and TV people are running around, and it was a mess. So I was by noon, I was starting to get it organized. And I, I, uh, the first player, and by the way, the president of the USGA, Stuart Block, had come down to watch me. He wanted to see how I was doing. And he had a new white hat on because a bird had hit, the, hit his hat on the way. <laughs> So he stepped, Stewart's standing there, and he's observing, and and the first player, uh, Jadon Blake, hit the ball left and near the out-of-bounds. The next player played, and the third player was Jim Thorpe, a great guy, as you probably know. And and uh, so he got over the ball, and, and I knew that somebody had to play a provisional ball. But so all of a sudden, Jim was ready to hit, he, he was quick to the tee, and he was ready to hit. And all of a sudden, I blurted, Jim, is this a provisional ball? And Jim turned around. He looked at me. He says, man, I ain't even hit it yet. And you guys are trying to penalize me. 
Well, well, in my confusion, I realized I hadn't even introduced him yet, and it was Jadon who was going to have to get the provisional. So uh, Jim smoked it down the middle, and I ran up to him and gave, tried to give him a big hug, and we laughed, and, and off they went. But um, here he thought the USGA was <laughs> going to give him a penalty, and he hadn't even hit a shot yet. So. <laughs> That's too good. I couldn't imagine um, the, 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 the look that he looked back at you with the – those steely eyes, and uh, fortunately for you, yeah, he piped it right down the middle. He didn't have to hit a provisional. <laughs> that no. would have that would have that would have been uh, the icing on the cake there. But uh, no. uh, one of the other funny stories that that you know, reading your book, talking about at uh, Beth Page in two thousand nine, and about Dick Clark, not from <laughs> New Year's Rock and Eve either. <laughs> now you got me laughing. <laughs> Well, if you remember that open, you know, it was so rainy. It was kind of like uh, Kennedy Airport, you know, on a snow-packed day uh, when when you don't know when planes are going to take off. I mean, that's the way the open was. And we had so many delays. And long story short, um, uh, Jim Furyk and Paul Casey and I forget the third player were standing there ready to play. And we had no referee. And I didn't want to go on the radio and, and ask for Jim Bunch. I didn't want to embarrass him. So there's a chap standing there, and he had all the official garb on. And I said, what's your name? He says, uh, Dick Clark. And I think my smart aleck comic was, uh, do you want to dance? You know, I was thinking of the, the great uh, musical celebrity. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. Uh, were you at our dinner, committee dinner? No, no, I couldn't get there. Where are you from? New Jersey. Well, long story short, I, I um, introduced Dick Clark to the players and sent him off as a referee in the U.S. Open. Guy just standing there. Well, they got to the 10th hole and, and they needed a ruling. Paul Casey needed a ruling. And I got a call on the radio saying, uh, did you send a referee with that group? I said, yes, I did. Well, guess what? Dick Clark had disappeared. He'd gone and gotten lunch or something. I don't know. But um, <laughs> nobody was there to no, give the rules. I had sent a guy who, who was just standing there minding his own business out to referee in the U.S. Open. <laughs> and as, as you know, it's a tough enough job if you know the rules. But um, you're Dick Clark. <laughs> Yeah, he probably had the day of a lifetime. And, and you, uh, you got to meet him a few years later, I, I guess, and, uh, and, and make it have a laugh about the, uh, the situation, didn't you? I was having lunch at Chambers Bay, and I heard the name Dick Clark introduced at the table. And I jumped up, and I ran over there, and I, I said, are you the Dick Clark from Beth Page? And he said, well, yes, I am. But we had a good laugh over it. And, um, yeah, it was the same Dick Clark. We're now living in Austin, Texas. <laughs> Amazing. Look, we, we could yeah. we could spend all day talking about these stories from U.S. Open and your time with with the, the USGA and and all of your golfing travels around the world. But one one story really sticks out to me, and and it's it's been talked about a little bit, and I think uh, Fox even did a little bit of a a piece on it for the U.S. Open. This year, but it had to do with the flag from the 17th green at the 1982 
U.S. Open. How did you grab it after the tournament was over? And what did you do with it? Steve, the, the flag made its way to the <clears throat> USGA office, and I grabbed it the next morning and and uh, took it home and put it away in a drawer or someplace. And so you commandeered uh, you, you commandeered yeah. the one the one flag. You kind of knew it was it was pretty special <laughs> from the uh, from the seventy uh, first hole. Yeah, and Watson's chip in. Yeah, yeah, and and I had um, so I, I had the flag, and every once in a while I'd spot it and say to myself, what am I going to do with this thing? Well, finally, 22 years later, uh, the Open was at Olympia Fields in Chicago in uh, 2003. And lo and behold, Tom Watson was the leader of the first round of the U.S. Open in his last U.S. Open. So he was a big story, but uh, maybe a, just as big a story was the fact that his caddy, Bruce Edwards, uh, was suffering from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and and uh, his time was short. So finally, Sunday morning, I realized I still had the flag. And what I had planned to do was to have Tom sign it, and I would keep it. But with um, with the story of Tom on the leaderboard and Bruce not not healthy, uh, suddenly the <laughs> suddenly my eyes opened, and I said, "I'm going to give this flag to Bruce." So I chased around the club looking for Tom Watson to get his approval, and Tom wasn't there yet. It was early in the morning, and he was playing late. So finally, I took the flag to the to the tee, and I thought I'll present it to Bruce Edwards on the tee. Well, here comes Bruce to the first tee at Olympia Fields, and yeah, the sign that you know ALS has already taken its toll. He he didn't look too good, and I said, Bruce, uh, I'd like you to have this flag. And he said, what is this? I said, this is the flag from 1982. And he said, you're kidding me. I said, no, this is the flag. So he got emotional and he started to cry and I got emotional. And finally here, Tom Watson came up and he looked at the two of us. He said, "Uh, what's going on here? And I said, Tom, I tried to find you to see if this was okay. I gave the flag to Bruce. Did I do the right thing? Tom looked at me and said, you did the right thing. And then, you know, I, I always wondered what happened to the flag. And uh, uh, the ALS Foundation, um, they auctioned it the next day in Kansas City. And guess who got it? Tom Watson. The flag is now, they tell me, at the Kansas City Country Club where he grew up. And I couldn't be happier. I hope it. I hope he paid a million dollars for that flag. <laughs> Well, that that is that is one one special story, and yeah, you're you're right. That's a uh, that's that's definitely one flag, and you you absolutely did do the right thing. Now, now, just in closing, really, yeah. you know, us at the, the Silver Club Golfing Society, we travel all over the country, and you know, soon possibly the world, we're going to host tournaments. And you, you say in your book, golf is a passport to friendship. Now, in my count. Of all the players that you started in all of your U.S. Opens, uh, a rough estimate would be about 11,000 11, people that you would have started over your time, uh, you know, about 500 per event, you know, given all the four days of, of play with the cuts and everything. Your memories, really, of being on the first tee there, what is really the one that sticks out to you and why? 
the one introduction that sticks out to me would have to be one we haven't talked about, Arnold Palmer's last U.S. Open, and that was it, essentially his home area, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Oakmont Country Club in 1994. And uh, I describe it in the book, and uh, uh, <laughs> it was Arnold Palmer at his very best. That's all I can say uh, in a short time. Um, he was just an amazing person and a person of grace. And there are a lot of stories in the book about Arnold. And, and, I, and I also tell the, the soft side of Jack Nicklaus. And, and uh, his last U.S. Open certainly would, they would rank 1-2 or 2-1 right there. Well, that's very, very special. Look, we... We're going to let you go, and, and you know, we, we just can't, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for being a part of our Silver Club podcast today. The, the Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach, where can all of our listeners get this book? Well, um, I sign it um, especially as though you're introduced and in playing in the U.S. Open, just as you were. And I do that at Ron Reed, R-E-A-D, and ronreed.com. So uh, it's also available on Amazon, but I can't sign it there. So um, the book's doing, it's doing well, but uh, I can sign it personally and get it off to, um, to readers. And I welcome all comments. So far, I've been lucky. Yeah, well, well uh, yeah, if, if any of our listeners are out in the Pebble Beach area, if you hang out at the, the lodge at Pebble Beach, very often you, you make a walk up there with uh, your, your beautiful dog, Katrina. And uh, you may just run into to Ron Reed and bring your book. You have to have him sign sign your book. Um, you you can also get see Ron on social media at Golf Dinosaur. Uh, that's with three R's at the end. And uh, he has a lot of great posts from the Monterey Peninsula and the California coastline, and uh, a lot of great pictures. And uh, you you're just you're tied into the game and connected to this game unlike most anybody out there. And, and Rod, we, couldn't, we can't thank you enough for being on the Silver Club podcast today. And I hope you enjoy your, uh, your 75th birthday coming up on October 6th. Wow. I, I think you were as good a student at Florida as you are a, a broadcaster. And uh, thank you so much. I, as you know, you're, you're in my personal Hall of Fame uh, for a great memory there at Pumpkin Ridge. And and you know why. And uh, I wish you well in this endeavor, too. Thank you so much. Well, well, thank you. And uh, everybody, get the book, Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. Thanks, Ron Reed, for being on the Silver Club Podcast. Thank you, Steve. Bye now. <laughs>